It is all part of God's plan. God gives this vision to Daniel and ultimately to us so that we can see that it didn't surprise God when all these things are gonna happen. It's not as though God, you know, turned around for half a second, then he turned back and he said, what happened, right? Why didn't you pull up your bootstraps and fix everything? Why didn't you bring shalom from heaven to earth and turn this into a, a utopian place? Why is everything so bad? Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb, and we're in our current series in the book of Daniel, where we're asking, how can God's people not only survive, but thrive in Babylon? For resources and information about this teaching series, or to learn about our ministry, please visit us at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Many of the greatest stories, the ones that we carry with us, are the stories that start with tragedy, but then somehow in the last moment, the very thing that we anticipated that was tragic and evil and final is flipped on its head, and then everything that we thought was evil becomes untrue, and it leads us into joy and into salvation. I've shared with you before that uh, it was J.R.R. Tolkien, the author and creator of Lord of the Rings, who coined the phrase, eucatastrophe. Um, if you love to read and to write, I would just entrust his book on fairy stories to you. And there within that, he talks about the eucatastrophe, the joyful catastrophe, how these very evil things that we often face in our life that we think are the end are flipped upside down upon themselves and it leads to our salvation. And he said that all the stories that we think of um, as our favorite stories in the world Follow the script. Like, think about it for a second. You think about how Star Wars ends with the Death Star. Or you think about the end of the Lord of the Rings when they're on Mount Doom. Or the end of Harry Potter. Or my favorite story, uh, the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Or sorry, It's a Beautiful Life. That last sequence when Joshua goes back to his mother. Or the story of Iron Man when he gets the five rings and he makes the evil calamities that Thanos has committed and they all become untrue. All these stories are eucatastrophes. And J.R. Tolkien, he says the reason why these stories are so compelling to us is because we all know deep down in our guts, that's what we need. That's what we need. And then we see it for what it is. He says the ultimate eucatastrophe is the story of King Jesus. When he came heaven, down from heaven to earth and there he put on flesh and he dwelt among us and he went to Golgotha, the land of the skull, and he stretched out his hands and he died a sinner's death even though he was sinless in every way. He paid for the penalty of death. He endured death. He went into the tomb. But then he rose again. The very instrument that was used to bring about his death led to his resurrection and our resurrection too. This is the story that we need. And deep down in our hearts, every single human being on the planet is drawn to this story because we know we need this story too. We know that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. We know that in the world there is evil and suffering and calamity. And we say, why is the world 
like this. Why is the world not the way it's supposed to be? And then we see that Jesus makes a way when there was no way. I share all of that with you because we are, start, or we are ending our Daniel series this morning. So if you got your Bibles, find Daniel chapter 10. We're gonna be blazing through the last three chapters of 10, 11, and 12. And we are also end, uh, starting our season of Advent. And in this story, these last three chapters, it follows the same script of the Eucatastrophe. In a nutshell, here's what we see. The author is telling us this. Here's the bad news. Things are dark, and they're about to get darker. But do not despair. Here's why. Because it's all according to God's plan. It's all according to God's plan. And that's what we're going to see laid out before, to, before us this morning. We've called this series Thriving in Babylon because this book is about shining with an otherworldly and uncommon light of hope in the midst of dark places and asking ourselves, how can we have that sure and certain hope? Even when the world is dark, even when we face evil and suffering in our own life, how can we have this sort of hope? Because typically, when you look at the world around you, we like to have this idea that the world is gradually getting better and we're getting closer and closer to utopia. And yet, that's not what scripture says. That's not what we see in the book of Daniel. And may I be so bold in saying that is not the human experience either. It is par for the course for us to have evil and suffering. Be encouraged, let's pray, amen, right? So if you got your Bibles, Daniel chapter 10, I want us to see this eucatastrophe. And as we close this series, I want you to see why God, through his servant Daniel, tells us these things. I love the way that uh, the reformer, Martin Luther, puts it when he talked about these three chapters. He says this, Daniel concludes the record of his terrifying visions and dreams on a note of joy. There it is, eucatastrophe, pointing to the coming of Christ's eternal reign of glory. Whoever wants to study them profitably dare not focus his or her attention on the details of the visions and dreams, but seek comfort in the Savior Jesus Christ to whom they portray. So if you have the eyes to see this, you will see that everything that we're going to read this morning is ultimately fulfilled in the advent, the coming, the arrival of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that is why um, I shared a little bit earlier this week that I think Daniel 10, 11, and 12 is the perfect way to start the season of Advent, the Advent of hope. And I'd like to say that I planned it that way, so let's pretend I did. That's what we did. Daniel chapter 10, starting at verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, 
and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. So last week, Pastor Adam walked us through the prayer of Daniel, where Daniel confesses his sins and the sins of the people of Israel, and then he petitions God to bring the 70-year exile to an end. Why 70 years? Well, because Daniel knows the prophecy of Jeremiah, which was shared during his time, that this exile will be for 70 years. Years. So let's do the math. If you recall all the way back to the very beginning of this series, you will recall that the exile occurred in 605 BC. So if you're taking notes, 605 BC, that's when the exile occurred. And Daniel has been in Babylon for all of these years. We also know from scripture that the Persians defeated the Babylonians in 539 BC. And this is the third year of Cyrus. That's 536. So what do we see? This is the 70th year of the exile. Once again, the prophecy of God through Jeremiah is fulfilled. How did Jeremiah know that? How did he know that it was going to be the 70th year? Well, God revealed that to his people. It would be 70 years. And so we heard Daniel's desperation last week. Particularly, we see this in chapter 9, verse 19. He says, he pleads to God, saying, Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act for your sake, my God. Do not delay. Because your city and your people bear your name. And we discover that he didn't have to wait long. If you're looking for some biblical context to this, just jot down Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and there you will see that it declares that Cyrus, king of Persia, permits the people of Israel to go home in the 70th year. And in fact, it goes on in Ezra chapter 2 to say that there were 40,000 in the company, men, women, and children, and they begin to make their journey home, reversing the same journey that Daniel took 70 years prior. That is the equivalent of starting in Abbotsford and going all the way to Edmonton, but you're walking. And so they make their way home. And I have to picture in my mind, what, what would it be like for Daniel to experience this? Because one of the things you might have noticed is Daniel is not with them when they go home. The call of Daniel is to stay and to live out his days in Babylon. So I can picture this in my mind that Daniel is leaning against the first gate in Babylon, the entrance gate, called the Marduk gate after their pagan god, Marduk. We've been learning about those gates. The Ishtar gate was the eighth and final gate into the city, the heart of Babylon, and that's where he worked, right? In the king's court. He would go through the Ishtar gate every single day, but on this particular day, he's on the first gate, and he's waving goodbye to all the people of Israel as they're going home. And I would expect that he would have tears in his eyes welling up with joy seeing them go home. And I think he probably stayed there for a couple of hours as he watched the whole entourage go through. And he probably watched until the last person was visible and then out of sight and the dust settled. And he could no longer hear the tambourines and the dancing and the singing and the shouting. And it was quiet. 
And now they're gone. They're making their way back home. But Daniel is committed to stay. He knows that the Lord has seen fit for him to stay. Fast forward two years and Daniel would eventually hear what he already knew. Because we saw that vision last week in chapter 9. That the rebuilding of the temple would stall. And that the people of Israel would once again face opposition. And the vision that we're reading this morning occurred shortly after this dreadful news. So just imagine this for a second. Here's Daniel as a teenager, 15, 16, 17, somewhere in that range. And he is ripped away from his family. Presumably his parents are killed. He is castrated. Any dreams that he had of being a parent, uh, being a husband, having a career, living out his days peaceably, they're all gone. He must go to Babylon. He has to learn from Babylon University. And he has to live out his days in Babylon. But then finally, after 70 years, the people of God can go home. Yay! for two years and then it gets worse it just gets bad again and so he is filled with sadness and remorse more bad news after more bad news after more bad news verse 4 on the 24th day of the first month as I was standing on the bank of the great river the Tigris I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. So what, what's this uh, on the 24th day? Like are we reading Daniel's diary or the Bible? Like what's up with that? To understand what's happening here, we have to think like a Hebrew. The first month of the 24th day, that means it is the time of Passover. The season in which the people of Israel remember the hand of God, the power of God, when they were enslaved in Egypt. And God used ten plagues to bring Israel down to its knees. But it was the tenth plague that broke the back of Pharaoh. The, the plague of Passover. The angel of death comes and he takes the firstborn of every single household unless... They had a pure and spotless lamb that they slaughtered and they took the blood and they put it on the doorposts of their homes. And if they had that, then the angel of death would pass over. Once again, the anticipation, we have to have the eyes to see this, of what Jesus would do for us. He is the lamb who was slain. He is the one that if we have the blood of Jesus written on the doorposts of our hearts, we can be set free. That God's just judgment passes over us and is put upon Jesus even though he was pure and spotless. And so Daniel, he, he doesn't know that it's Jesus. He just knows that the Messiah is coming and that one day all of these hopes and dreams would be fulfilled. But not during his day. He knows that things are going to get worse before they get better. And that's why he's mourning. Even though this is, this is the second year where they could finally give full expression and worship. Once again, they're in Israel, right? Can you imagine the kind of party they were having during the season of Passover after a 70-year exile? But Daniel is mourning because he knows what's coming. He knows that things are going to get worse before they get better. And so we're not going to take too much time in chapters 10 and 11 because they recount the previous visions that we've seen already. 
So for the sake of our guests, really quickly in a nutshell, there will be four kingdoms who rise and fall. We will have Babylon, we'll have the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans. And during the peak of Roman power, the Messiah would come, who we now know as Jesus Christ. And so these are the visions that are once again being revealed to us in new, fresh, vibrant ways. Then there's another reference to Antiochus Epiphanes, who I talked about two weeks ago. And he is the man who did despicable things against the people of Israel. Right? He didn't just murder soldiers, but pregnant women and elderly women. And he had sacrifices with pigs in the Holy of Holies in the temple. He created a shrine to himself and he said, bow down to me. He is considered to be the Adolf Hitler of the Old Testament. And once again, we see Antiochus making an appearance in these chapters once again. But the last three chapters are different. They're different. God's not just being redundant for redundancy's sake. What is the goal behind these visions? What is God trying to help us see? So think of it like this. Here, here's a way that we can create a contrast between the visions that we've seen already and the ones that we see in chapters 10, 11, and 12. The previous visions are given to us so that we can understand that life is going to be hard. Just expect it. Don't be surprised by it. And again, like I shared with you, for the sake of the original listeners, God wants to create a window of time for them to anticipate the advent of Jesus. Four kingdoms, Babylon, Persians, Greeks, Romans, during the peak of Rome, the Messiah would come. You should anticipate this. So that's what the previous visions were trying to help them see is when the Messiah would come. So much so, I, I gotta share this with you. In Matthew chapter 11, take note of this, read the context later. That is when John the Baptist is in prison. And he takes his own disciples and he says, go to Jesus and ask him this question. Are you the Messiah, the one that Daniel's talking about? Are you him or should we be looking for someone else? And do you know what Jesus does when he receives that question? He quotes Isaiah 42 and 43. And he says, the blind receive sight. The leprous are cleansed. Those who cannot move and who do not have mobility of their legs, they can stand. And the dead are raised. What is Jesus doing? He's saying, I am the fulfillment of everything that you read in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Daniel, in Ezekiel. All of those things are being fulfilled in me. I am he. So that's what the previous visions are trying to do to help us see that Jesus will be who he says he is. But then, in the visions that we see today, the last three visions, they, they are to help us see both why things are going to be difficult and, equally important, what we are called to do in the midst of it. This, look, my sleeves are rolled up. That's what we're doing this morning. We're rolling up the sleeves and we're saying, what does it look like to live in the hope of Christ even before the second coming of Jesus? Because that's what we do in Advent. We're anticipating the birth of Jesus, but that's already come. So now we're anticipating the second coming of Jesus when all is made new. And we're living into the hope of what we already know to be true. How do we live that way? What does it look like to live that way? 
I know a few of you are reading the book Daniel for you with me. And in the closing chapter of that book, the author, David Helm, he says this. God gives us this book, Daniel 10, 11, and 12, because it compels God's people to action. The vision was given to Daniel that he might know something of the future and how followers of God ought to live now in light of that future. That's the point of these visions. How ought we live? And that's where it starts. Look again at verse one if your Bibles are open. It says at the end of verse one, it concerned a great war. What war? What, what war is he referring to? Is this the war between Babylon and Persia? No. This is the great spiritual war that is occurring all around us. Here's what Daniel wants you to see. The conflicts that we experience here on earth, the suffering, the pain, the war, the rumors of war, all the evil and sickness that we experience are just a veiled reflection of what is happening in the spiritual realm all around us all the time. And God wants you to have the eyes to see this, that the real battle is not the one we see with our eyes, but is the one that is happening with spiritual forces all around us, between our Lord and God and Satan and his minions. And we're wrapped up in this. It was Abraham Kuyper who said it this way, if once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to us a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Our earthly struggle drones in the backlash. So God wants you to be convinced of this. He wants to unveil this for us so that we have the eyes to see it for what it is and for us to know it deep in our bones. And, and there's a reason for this. Because if we do, then we will know how to appropriately respond as people of God. But if we don't, sadly, here's what we will do. We will use all the same weapons the world does to try to win. And God wants us to see the war for what it is and for what it isn't. So here's the way I put it in your note sheet. The goal of the vision is this, to show you what the battle is, what's at stake, and how to fight. What the battle is, what's at stake, and how to fight. God wants you to be prepared because an awareness of the great spiritual conflict will help motivate you to be prepared and for you to appropriately clothe yourself with the spiritual weapons of war that God is giving you, which are different than the worldly weapons of war. Does that make sense? There's a difference with how the world is going to fight and how Christians are going to fight. And Daniel says, this is the way for me and you. Maybe uh, this example would be helpful. It, it's kind of like being inappropriately dressed for weather. There's nothing wrong with board shorts unless you're in the North Pole. There's nothing wrong with a big warm parka unless you're in the beaches of San Diego. You have to be appropriately dressed for the weather. 
And so God is trying to say, here is the spiritual weather that you are going to be facing in your Christian life. So it, it doesn't really matter what's coming out before you. You just need to be prepared for it. And if we have an idea that the world that we're going to live in is going to be a spiritual, balmy 25 degrees every single day, then you are not going to be prepared and you are going to be placed in harm's way and you might even lose faith in a faithful God on the basis of something he never said because he said, life is going to be hard, it's going to be filled with suffering, but then when you face that suffering, you say, where's God? Where's God? And he said, I told you it would be hard. You're just not dressed for the right weather. And so God, through Daniel, wants you to be prepared. Here's the thing that we have to recognize. The evil one does not care about your earthly life. Satan does not care about your earthly life. He cares about your eternity. And he will use the circumstances of your earthly life, whatever it may be, to try to drive you away from the love of the Heavenly Father and for you to run in another direction. And he will use whatever means available to him. One of the ways he might do this is by bringing about peace upon your life and for you to say, wow, I am self-sufficient. Everything is going so well, which turns into apathy and no need for God. But another way that the evil one might do this is to inflict upon you calamity and suffering and death of loved ones for you to say, where is God in this? And to lose faith in a faithful God and to turn in another direction. He doesn't care about the circumstances of your life. All he cares about is the implicit action that you're going to use next. Will you walk away from God on account of the joy and the peace and the prosperity of your life? Will you walk away from God on account of the suffering of your life? He wants you to walk away from God. That's what he wants for you. And we have to have the eyes to see it. Whether it be to convince you that you're not even in a battle, that's peace. Or that the battle is waging and now you need to use earthly weapons in order to get what's yours. Either way, Satan says, I'll call that a win. I'll call that a win. I've shared with you already that the twin pitfalls that Daniel has identified in this book when it comes to seeking to thrive in Babylon is um, assimilation and cultural separation. And we see it once again in chapter 10. Let me just help you have the eyes to see this. The assimilation response is in chapter 10 when Daniel begins to weep. And as I shared with you already, one of the reasons why he's weeping is because he knows things are about to get darker. But the second reason why he is weeping is because so few of the people of Israel have actually returned to Israel. As I shared with you, the number was 40,000 according to Ezra. That is not all the people of Israel. They're in the millions. So few have returned. So few have come home. So few are interested in rebuilding the temple. So few are interested in, in worshiping with the people of God. And it grieves his heart. They have found themselves assimilated in other cultures and they've moved on. They have lost their identity as the people of God. But the cultural separation motif is at play in this too. I want you to see this in Daniel chapter 11, verse 14. So this is the war between Alexander the Great and the Persians. That's the context here. It says, in those times, many will rise against the king of the south. Those who are violent among your own people will rebel 
in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. What's happening here? The people of God are trying to take matters into their own hands. So a vision, a prophecy has been given that things are going to be worse. The people of Israel say, you know what? I don't care too much for that vision. I'm going to go my own way. And they try to fix it. They try to do it in their own power. And what happens? Things get worse on account of it. They make a mess of things. They fail. They don't accomplish anything at all. And what I would like to propose to you is we do the same thing. We do the same things. When things don't go our way, when we become concerned with the way the world is going, we might, with the right motivation, try to shove in our vision of the way things should be. But in so doing, we make a mess of things. So once again, asking that question with rolling up our sleeves, what does it look like for us to appropriately respond? I want to give you three things that are laid out in this text. Here's the first one. Check your perspective. This, this is tied to ultimately to our brain, right? The manner of thinking that we have. Check your perspective. Do you have the thought process that says this? It is all part of God's plan. It is all part of God's plan. God gives this vision to Daniel and ultimately to us so that we can see that it didn't surprise God when all these things are going to happen. It's not as though God, you know, turned around for half a second, then he turned back and he said, what happened? Right? Why didn't you pull up your bootstraps and fix everything? Why didn't you bring shalom from heaven to earth and turn this into a, a utopian place? Why is everything so bad? <laughs> He's saying, we anticipated this. And not only that, here, here's a fourth dimensional truth that is really, really hard to understand. God planned this. God planned this. So let me just try and puck handle this a little bit. There, there's two profound realities that we have to understand when it comes to the sovereignty of, the, of God. Here's the first one. On the one hand, we know from scripture, God does not cause evil and suffering. God does not cause evil and suffering. He is not involved in evil. He will not cause someone else to commit evil. And then in James chapter 1, it says God himself cannot be tempted, and he tempts no one else. So we know without a shadow of a doubt, whenever there is evil in the world, God is not part of that. He is not the one to cause evil. But at exactly the same time, in the scope of God's sovereignty, we say this. God works in the world in such a way that he will use evil and suffering to bring about his kingdom purposes in the world. His kingdom will advance even through it. Both of those things are true. I know it feels like two magnets that are repelling against each other. Like, how does that fit? I don't understand it. But both of them are true. And we have to hold them in tension. So let me give you an example of this, because I think ultimately the best way we see this is through the, the rear view mirror, right? Sometimes the front windshield is full of bugs, and we're saying, like, where's God in this? I've, I have no understanding about how God could be in this. But then later we say, oh, my goodness, I just didn't have the eyes to see. So here's a story that I came across this week that I feel like really highlights this really well. A man named Steve Saint he spoke at a Desiring God conference about uh, 15 years ago, 
and he talked about five young missionaries who went to the beaches of Ecuador, and, he, and they wanted to share the gospel with a remote tribe there, the Akuas. And they started off by bringing them food and water and medical supplies, but they were so remote, they had never heard the word Jesus before or gospel or Bible. And so their desire was to ultimately share the good news of Jesus with them. But after a couple of weeks, they were deceived by certain men in this tribe and they were slaughtered and they were killed. 50 years passed and here's this man and he's telling the story and he begins to cry and he says, one of those five men was my father, the late Nate Saint. And then he shared with the whole group something that just floored all of them. He said to them, even this falls underneath God's sovereign plan. And they were shocked and perplexed. How could this be? He said, when I was a little boy and I heard that my father was killed, I really questioned the motive of God. Like, how could God allow something so evil and terrible to happen? Like, my father's only motivation, God, was to share your word with your people. How could you let this happen? How could you let this happen? How could you take my father away from me? But then he said, even in this, God's sovereign plan was accomplished. He went on to share the story that his mother and all the wives of these five men went back to that tribe, the tribe of the Akuas. And this tribe was so astonished by their forgiveness and their faithfulness and their generosity that peace came upon this tribe and almost all of them came to faith in Jesus. And then he even went so far to say, there was one particular man, his name is Minkaya, and he confessed to me that he was the man who took a spear and put it in the heart of my father. And he said, just a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to baptize him. And he's now part of our family. Our kids call him grandpa. And we love him and he loves us. And he sees Jesus for who he is. And then he went on to talk a little bit about Daniel, chapters 10, 11, and 12. And he said what I think is one of the most profound words I've ever heard. He said this, why is it that we want every chapter to be good when God promises only that in the last chapter, he will make all the other chapters make sense? Daniel wants us to have the eyes to see this. That even in our suffering, even in our pain, that God does not sit idly by. He is the first to mourn with you. He is the first to mourn the devastating effects of sin. But that he will redeem even the most evil and vile things that have happened in your life in such a way that they will be turned into memorials of God's grace. And that God's kingdom would be advanced even in those things. 
It's the first thing that God wants you to see in this. Check your perspective. Do you have the perspective that says it is all part of God's plan? He is sovereign. He is in control. And therefore, I can be at peace. Even during troubling times. Here's the second thing I want to lay out for you. Check your posture. If we do believe that God is sovereign and all-loving, then here's what we have to see. Prayer is the ultimate weapon. Prayer is the ultimate weapon. A great litmus test for us to determine if we actually believe that God is all-powerful is whether or not we pray. Seriously, like think about this with Daniel. One thing that is so remarkable about Daniel is just how deeply devoted he is to prayer. And I know all the press goes to, you know, Daniel in the lion's den and, you know, the fiery furnace and his ability to interpret dreams and how everything he touches turns to gold and how God blesses his life even while he's in exile. That's where all the stories go. But all of that is nothing if we fail to see that before all of that, Daniel was first a man who was devoted to prayer. He was devoted to prayer. And today we need the same thing. Men and women and young people and children who are fully devoted to prayerfulness, to seeking God's face, that we don't try to shove forward our own plans and our own goals, but we recognize that in the scope of God's sovereignty, he is in control and he has a part for me to play. And so the question is always, Lord, what will you have me do today? Where will you have me go? Who will you have me talk to? Who do I need to encourage? Who do I need to pray for? What's your plan for me today? I know you got a plan. It's not a question of if God has a plan. It's what is his plan and is my life uh, forward thinking toward his plan? Is my life in accordance with his plan? Is your life devoted to prayer? And to see this third point, look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says this, At that time, the angel Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. Do you realize what we just read? In the exact moment that persecution is decreed from God, so too is the resurrection of Jesus. That's what it's talking about. The resurrection of Jesus. And ultimately that leading to our resurrection too. So I get it. Like some of you, you might be a little bit disappointed because there's a whole lot of uh, prophetic visions in chapter 10, 11, and 12. And you're like, what do they mean? And how, how do they get played out today? And when's it going to happen so that I can put it on my calendar? Right? I, I want to know exactly how it's all going to play out. But to do that misses the point entirely. In fact, that's exactly what Daniel hears too. Look at verse 5. This is really interesting. Verse 5 says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? There it is. We're going to find out. We're going to know without a shadow of a doubt when it's going to happen. The man clothed in linen 
who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, it will be for a time, times, and half a time. Wow. Specificity. Amazing. Whatever that means. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be accomplished. And so Daniel, just like me, he says, I heard, but I, I don't get it. I did not understand. So I asked my Lord, what will the outcome of all of this be? What's the outcome? When's it gonna happen? I gotta know. I gotta put it on the calendar. I gotta make my plans. So, verse nine, here it is. You ready? It's exciting. Here we go. He replied, it will happen in 2022. <laughs> oh, no, that's just my Bible, I guess. He replied, go your way, Daniel. Go your way, Daniel. Because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. What? What did we just read? It's exactly the same thing that Jesus says to Peter when he looks at John and he says, uh, what will the outcome be for John? Because Jesus just predicted that Peter will die on account of his faith in Jesus. And he says, that's not for you. <laughs> it's not for you. So if it's not for Daniel, may I be so bold and say it's not for you either? And it's not for me? But the one thing that we do know in this, what is clear is the angel is not nearly as concerned with how long this will take, and he's far more concerned with what are the people of God doing in preparation for it. What are the people doing in preparation for it? Because that's the point. God will ultimately use the circumstances of our life, even if he draws us to our knees, to help us see God for who he is more clearly. And I know I've shared this with you a couple times, but I gotta share it one more time. The way that I have been telling you this as your pastor for four years is this. If we are faithful to suffer well, God will use our circumstances to bring about his glory and our good. His glory and our good. And so here's the third and final point. We've already said, check your perspective, that's your brain. Check your posture, that's your heart. And here's the third one. Check your action plan. That's your hands and your feet. And ask yourself this question, with what life am I most concerned? My earthly life or my eternity? The earthly life of others or their eternity? Because friends, our hope is not in the success of this life. Our business, our career, our marriage, our family, as important as those things are. The most important thing that we need to be drawn to and thinking of often is that life is short and eternity is long. And God is saying, you better live like it. Live like it. And we see once again that Daniel's life was lived out in such a way that he was a man of prayer, a man of fasting, a man of mourning, always seeking to align himself with the will of God. And I shared with you that the greatest miracle of this entire book is not in Daniel 10, 11, 12, 7, or 8. It's not the fiery furnace. It's not Daniel in the lion's den. It's when King Nebuchadnezzar came to faith. When God took a heart of stone and turned it into a heart of flesh. The greatest miracle of the world is a heart that is bent against God that turns and sees Jesus for who he truly is. And so look again at verse two. 
If you have your Bibles, take a look at it. It announces the resurrection of Jesus, which is also our resurrection. But what does it also announce? That not everyone will be coming with us. That some will turn away and not receive the gift. And ultimately, that is what God wants us to consider. That do we live our lives in such a way that we are deeply concerned about the men and women who do not yet know Jesus? And so I want to lay that before you. The power and the authority of the kingdom is now here. It is at your disposal. The Holy Spirit resides in every single person who is a believer in Jesus. And the question is, are you prepared and ready to be a part of God's kingdom plan? Are you ready? In that way, we can be like Daniel in chapter 12, verse 3. All those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness, away from sin, toward righteousness, will be like the stars forever and ever. Friends, may that be said of us. You've been listening to the latest sermon in our current Daniel series, Thriving in Babylon. You can find resources and information about this teaching series and more information about our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time for the weekly sermon at Gateway.